Uh, my name's Nathan. I serve on the equipping team here at Watermark. And uh, um, yeah, just would love to open up tonight with just a word of prayer. And uh, if I don't topple this table over. Um, but I also know that you guys are, just like everybody, um, are coming in from probably some of you, um, potentially, sorry, um, had really long days. Um, some of you may have had a really hard day. Um, others of you may have had a great day. I don't know. Um, I was in two hospitals today. <laughs> um, one for a newborn and another for my father-in-law who's getting, who's having back surgery tomorrow. Um, but, um, I just realized like we live in a fallen, broken world. So, um, if anybody has any, um, pressing needs or prayer requests, um, then I'd love to pray for you as we get started. Um, so I'll give you guys an opportunity. Anybody want to, anybody have any prayer requests before we start? Yeah. What's your name? Do you mind standing up and Okay, yeah, yeah. Come on. Do you have a name yet? Lucy. Lucy. Come on, Lucy. Um, turn over. Okay, yeah, thanks thanks for sharing that. Anybody else? Everybody's hunky dory? It's okay if we are. Um, but I do think so we're uh tonight is uh kind of the hump class for this class is the halfway point. Um, and uh, so far we've talked, for those of you guys who haven't been here yet, um, we've got week two slides and stuff in the back there. Does this seem really loud to you guys? Yeah, can you, t- can you turn it down? Um, maybe significantly down? <laughs> um, but I think we have, uh, we've got week two slides back there. And then I think uh, the first week, if you missed it and you want to, get those. Are those online yet, Sylvia? Or they will be soon? Okay, yeah. Which, by the way, hey, that's Sylvia McCollum back there. If you guys want to give her a round of applause, she's... Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, there you go. <laughs> um, no, Sylvia is uh, actually new to staff, and she is our new core classes um, uh, coordinator. And so... Uh, if you take a core class, then you'll see a lot of her. So, doing a great job, Sylvia. Um, but uh, we basically have been covering, um, the first week we covered a lot of biblical backgrounds and context around Jesus' life um, so that we do it justice, or at least somewhat justice, um, to be able to place him in his context so we understand um, who he's interacting with, why he's saying what he's saying, and why he's doing what he's doing. Um, but these last three weeks, so tonight, uh, so the first week was context. Then last week we covered the claims of Jesus. What did Jesus say about himself? Um, what did he believe about himself? And then tonight we're going to, uh, cover the part around what did Jesus do about that? Um, what were his works and what did they, what did his works say about him? And then the last three weeks, um, we'll cover the message of Jesus next week. So what did he teach? What was he saying? Um, and then uh, week five will be, uh, we'll focus on uh, the passion of Christ, um, his, his death, his execution. 
And then the last week, we'll cover uh, the resurrection and the commission of Jesus to his followers um, uh, to, frankly, carry on what he's already doing. And so when I ask for prayer requests, I mean, obviously, I, I don't assume that everybody in here is a Christ follower. Um, I think that's probably a safe assumption that not everybody is. Um, so I don't want to presume upon you. But for me, as a Christ follower, as a Christian, as a disciple of Jesus, um, I do think it's important um, for us to, um, to continue to do the things that Jesus is doing. And one of those things is to intercede There's a little aspect of and you'll you'll hear me talk a lot more about discipleship as the class goes on. It's a passion of mine um, so i don't I guess I'm just saying like I don't take a prayer request like flippantly like okay, let's pray you know this is a um, sacred time right um, if we believe what we believe, which I do at least um, then bringing things to the one who is able and has authority over all of life's circumstances is a significant deal. So um, so we're going to pray that Lucy turns, <laughs> and you guys have better um, reports in the future. Well, Jesus, the fact that we can even, the fact that we can even talk to you is, a miracle, and um, the fact that you hear us and that you care about us is just a, a the mystery of the ages, and and yet um, we're thankful. And Lord, we know that there's lots of ideas about you out there, and I just pray that through this class, through the way that we interact with your. Scripture, the way that we interact with one another, the way we interact with you, um, would be instructive for us that um, we would not only have thoughts about you, but that they would be the right thoughts about you. Um, That we might know you for who you are and worship you for who you are, and not who we would have you be. Um, Lord, right now we just intercede for baby Lucy. and um, Lord, we know that you are the author and the sustainer of of all life, and we know that baby Lucy is firmly in your hands, and that you are sovereign over her little life, and um, and yet we know that we also live in a fallen world that's stained by our sin, um, and yet we know that you care, and that you care that we bring this to you. So we pray that Lucy will turn. We pray that um, from now on that there will be healthy reports about her that um, she could be carried to term and that she would enter this world with, with um, no complications. Um, and ultimately, we pray for her heart that there would come a day where your spirit would draw her to yourself, that she might know you and experience eternal life. We offer you this time. We know that you, your claim is that you are the teacher and the Lord. And so we pray that you would come teach. We pray that tonight you would keep us from distraction, you would keep us from the enemy, that you would um, just show yourself here that we might see you. 
we just love you and pray these things in the name of Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, thanks for letting me pray, guys. Y'all come on in. Don't be shy. Um, I'm sitting on a table. <laughs> it's awesome. Hey, uh, so when, when, it comes to, uh, when it comes to miracles, so one, let me back up a little bit. One of the ministries that I serve with here at Watermark is the Great Questions team. Has anybody ever been to Great Questions before on Monday nights? All right, sweet, good. Um, bam. <laughs> um, yeah, that's right. Um, so basically what Great Questions is, is uh, it's a ministry for people who are skeptics, seekers, people who just have questions about the faith, we, we kind of pitch it to people as, hey, our questions keeping you from faith, then come. Um, you can come ask your questions in a safe environment. No question is off limits. You know, if, if you can think it, you know, we can talk to you about it. There's no taboo um, question. So that's great questions. Um, and, uh, and so because, uh, I say that because as serving on that team, I also realize that um, there's probably, I don't know, maybe 30 people in here. And and uh, and there's there's 30 different worldviews in here. Um, probably most of our worldviews are very similar to one another, but there's still 30 different worldviews. And and uh, the, a worldview is basically just the lens that shapes or or the, uh, circumstances, ideas, experiences, um, uh, education. Uh, family, background, all of those things um, form a lens that you view your world through, right? And that's worldview. And so that's why everybody's worldview in, in some sense is different from one another, although we, we can have a uh, very similar worldviews to one another. And so the first third of tonight, or maybe quarter, I'm going to talk on uh, maybe a level that um, some people may not be uh, used to. And I don't say that um, like condescendingly or anything. It's just most people aren't t- talking about the things that we're going to talk about for the next 20 minutes or so. And, and so um, that's why you sh- if you didn't get the miracles handout, I'd love for you to pull that out because I'm going to reference it two or three times. Um, but the reason we're going to talk a- about um, worldview and, and how... Um, how to approach this is because a lot of times people come to the Gospels, they come to the narratives about Jesus with a lot of preconceptions about whether miracles are even possible, right? Um, which, which falls underneath uh, a naturalistic worldview. So I would say, uh, based on my experience of living in the world, that a materialist or a naturalist worldview is the predominant worldview that people hold to, at least in the Western world, okay? Um, I realize there's pockets in Africa and the Middle East and um, uh, some other places, but, but functionally in Europe and America and, and, A- and North Asia, I mean, naturalism is the predominant um, mindset. And basically what naturalism says is um, if you can't measure it or... or sense it with the five senses, then at the very least, it's not trustworthy, and at the very most, it does not exist, right? So it, um, uh, and, and I, I know probably if I was to 
poll you guys, a vast majority of you would be like, well, no, I'm, I mean, I believe that there's like a spirit realm, an immaterial realm, a, a soul. I believe people have a soul. Um, but at the same time, I also know that we, we fluctuate depending on um, where we are and who we're around and stuff like that. And so um, I know functionally for a lot of us, even though we would not call ourselves naturalists, there's still this point when we come to the Gospels and we turn to Mark chap- the end of Mark chapter 4 and we see Jesus speaking to water, right? That's going crazy. And he speaks to it and then the water's not crazy anymore. There's a part of us that's like, really? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I mean, and, and when Jesus, um, you, you know, uh, in Mark chapter 6, we're going kind to of cover all this tonight. In Mark chapter 6, he's now walking on top of the water, right? There's a part of you that's like, there, there's, a, there's the Sunday school part of you, if you grew up in church, that's like, okay, yeah, I mean, I believe that because you believe in kind of like the felt board Jesus kind of thing that we've talked about, but the, but the, the more like uh, skeptical or cynical side of you is like, but really? Like, did that really happen? Is that, and, and really, the, in the back of your mind, a lot of us are thinking like, is that even possible that it could happen? Um, we live in a scientific age. I mean, we measure everything. We have data for everything, right? And so we don't have data for that. And so we, we come to the table, and even though we might raise our hand and be like, no, I believe, um, I'm just telling you, like, we live in a society that is, that is enculturating us and is grooming us not to believe. Um, and so I want to address that first, um, our, our tendency toward naturalism. Even if we're, we don't call ourselves naturalists, a lot of us, a lot of times, we functionally operate like that. And so um, there's a couple of things that I think um, Mr. Lewis, um, C.S. Lewis, helps us to think about when considering um, what exactly is miracle. Um, is miracle possible and is miracle probable? Um, so let's look at some common mistakes that people make when they come to the gospel narratives um, with the assumption of, of naturalism. And, that, and that's basically just, they just assume that this stuff is impossible, um, which is why you have, you have guys um, all the way, really over the last 30 or 40 years, there have been a group of scholars who, who approach the text with the worldview of naturalism. And so they come to the, they come to the life of Christ with the baseline assumption that mirac- it, it's, it's, not that, it's not that miracles like are, are probably didn't happen. It's a concrete, they cannot happen. And so what you get from a lot, of, a lot of these scholars that approach this with a worldview of naturalism is you have a deconstructionism. And, and so what ends up happening is they're like, well, okay, obviously these people were like first century you know, mystics and everything appeared to be a miracle to them. And so they just, they saw actually something else, but they recorded it like a miracle. And okay, yeah, that's the way it is. And so their argument is driven, frankly, from an, an argument from silence. Um, because the text is actually saying something drastically different from that. Um, which is a crucial element for sure. But when we come to Jesus, um, what, what I would argue is, is that this man, obviously last week, if you were last week when we talked about the claims of Jesus, this man made such extraordinary claims about himself. And, and, and I think it was really clear for the people who heard him say these things that his claim was nothing less than what? Jesus claimed to be God, right? And so... Um, the, the fact that, um, that he claims these things is extraordinary. It, it's, it's, it's like, uh, um, 
well, that's a little bit of a rabbit trail. I'm not going to go there yet. I will go there, but not yet. Um, but let's stick with naturalism. So Lewis says um, about naturalism, he says this, um, and, and this is what I think we have to think about, because a lot of times we miss the forest for the trees. You guys ever heard this, this say, saying before? Like, um, there's this vast world that we fail to see because we're so um, focused in on one little speck of a massive, it's, it's like going into a painting, and, or like a mosaic, have you guys seen mosaics, or, or uh, uh, anybody, any art people in here? Um, what's the deal where you like poke into the uh, canvas? Whatever it is. Um, but it's where you, you know, uh, you like point into the canvas with certain colors and then it create as you're doing this, you're, you're um, creating artwork. And it's, it's like a naturalism, the way I like to think about it is naturalism focuses so much in on this point that they fail to step back and see the painting, right? Um, so this is what Lewis says about that. If the, if, if the natural means that which can be um, fitted into a class, that which obeys a norm, that which can be paralleled, in other words, he's talking about scientific methodology, that which can be explained by reference to other events, comparison, then nature herself as a whole is not natural. If a miracle means that which must simply be accepted the unanswerable actuality which gives no account of itself but simply is, then the universe is one great miracle. Right? So this is the thing that I think a lot of naturalists fail to see. And and I do think that some naturalists, like, their logical conclusion forces them to this. So when you get to the question of actual existence, why do we exist? How do we exist? Right? Right? then typically the physicist or the naturalist or whoever is asking these things um, naturally turns to the metaphysician, right? The, the spiritualist, the person to, to where they're like, we've come to the end of our ability to comprehend this. The fact that we exist should baffle us every single day. I mean, we, obviously we take it for granted because we just live and operate and think and, you know, get married and have babies and, you know, all of these things, and we're just like, oh, well, yeah, well, that's life. Well, the, I mean, maybe you, ought to, maybe you ought to back away from that and be like, why do I exist? Um, I mean, if, if the universe itself is an unanswerable actuality that by its nature can only happen once, then that's pretty much the definition of a miracle, right? And yet, this is something that we experience every single day. Every single day of your life is a miracle. Literally, a miracle. Now, we get conditioned to it because we have more than one day. But all of our days, um, in, in, in the scope of humanity, um, is one grand miracle. And so, whatever we believe, we can't, whatever we believe, we can't believe naturalism. Um, I mean, I think that um, naturalism assumes a couple of things. It's, it assumes that we have the capacity to have all of the information available to us so that we can test it, so that we can know it, but we don't even know what to measure ourselves against. There is nothing to measure ourselves against. We just are. And so um, that, that is what typically people fail to see. The other thing about um, naturalism is um, a lot of times people will say, I don't believe in any kind of supernatural 
event. I don't believe in any kind of supernatural, immaterial thing at all. And, um, and then you ask the person, um, hey, was the Holocaust in World War II, was that good or bad? And typically the person will say what? Bad, right? Um, and, and you can even say, um, hey, you have a cold in the nose. Is that good or bad? And the person will say, well, that's bad. I would rather not have a cold in the nose, right? And what's crazy, if you think about it, now just to stop and think for a second. If you think about it, what that person is doing is, is saying that there are two possibilities. There is either um, life or holocaust. There is either a cold in the nose or not a cold in the nose. And now what the person is doing by calling it good or bad is they're appealing to something that's outside of those two realities. Does that make sense? So if, if one is bad and the other one is good, how do you know that? How do you know that this is bad? How do you know that it's good? Well, because you're appealing to a higher standard than the reality that you can test in a test tube. Um, it, in other words... Um, if, if someone steals my wallet or punches me in the face, then I'm, I'm going to cry, justice! Why do I have the right to do that? Because there is a standard over and above actual reality that we measure reality by. And, and by definition, that is, so you have nature, and then our ability to comprehend and move through nature um, and even uh, allow our consciousness to define nature and to actually make moral and ethical judgments about what is right and wrong and good and bad, we are appealing to another nature higher than nature. And that is called what? Supernatural. Are you guys tracking with me? Is this like all right, over your head? Um, because I think this is really important as we, as we begin to look at the, the works of Jesus, um, especially coming from um, a naturalistic standpoint. So I think um, we, we do this all the time. Every day we make value judgments about ethics, about morals, about preference. What do we want? What do we not want? What, how are we making these appeals to our reality? And so whether you believe it or not, um, we are appealing to the supernatural on a daily basis. Most of us totally unconscious of the fact that we're doing that. And frankly, most of us are totally unconscious of the fact that we actually are existing in a reality that is itself a miracle. So when we come to the text, let's just come with an open mind about um, not only what's happening, but what types of things are happening when Jesus is working and moving. Another common mistake that people make is they'll, they'll, they'll typically think that the miracles are some kind of like arbitrary story um, stories about that could be compared to modern day fairy tales right frogs turn into princes um, bears are speaking trees are walking um, kind of like you know lord of the rings kind of stuff you know like when uh, the hobbits go talk to the ents you know um, i'm showing my uh, nerd side right um, but tolkien i love those books man uh, if you haven't read the lord the lord of the rings trilogy um, it's definitely worth it but miracles is arbitrary fairy, fairy tales. And what I want to establish um, in regard to this common mistake is, as tonight, as we look at the works of Jesus, Jesus is not only um, 
doing things that are extraordinary. He's doing things that are extraordinary that fit into the natural order of things. Okay, in other words, um, Jesus is not coming and uh, uh, arbitrarily um, making stones into bread because stones are not bread as the enemy would tempt him to do, right? I mean, that's one of the enemy's temptation is, is I want, you to, I want you to step out of the natural order that you have created to do something that would be arbitrary. And Jesus replies to him and says, hey, don't put the Lord your God to the test, right? Um, so he doesn't do that. He does take bread and what? What does he make from bread? More bread. He does take fish and make what? more fish. He does take water and turn it into wine, right? Um, so I want you to turn, well, um, let's, let me read this first, and then uh, we'll turn to, turn to page 13 in your handout for, of miracles. We're going to read a section there. But this is another quote from Lewis. He says, you find no miracles of, of this arbitrary kind in the Gospels. Such things, if they could be, would prove that some alien power was invading nature, they would, not be in the, they would not in the least prove that it was the same power which had made nature and rules her every day. But the true miracles express not simply a God, but God. That which is outside nature, not as a foreigner, but as her sovereign. They announce, that not merely, they announce not merely that a king has visited our town, but that it is the king, our king. Look at page 13 um, at the top there. There's an activity of God displayed throughout creation. A wholesale activity, let us say, which men refuse to recognize. Again, um, we're, we're missing the forest because we're so hyper-focused on the trees. So let's step back and look at what is, that, what is God actually doing. The, the miracles done by God incarnate, living as a man in Palestine, perform the very same things as this wholesale activity but at a different speed and on a smaller scale. One of their chief purposes is that men, having seen a thing done by personal power on the small scale, may recognize when they see the same thing done on the large scale that the power behind it is also personal, is indeed the very same person who lived among us 2,000 years ago. The miracles, in fact, are a retelling in small letters of the very same story which is written across the whole world in letters too large for some of us to see. Of that larger script, part is already visible, part is still unsolved. In other words, some of the miracles do locally what God has already done universally. Others do locally what He has not yet done, but will do. In that sense, and from our human point of view, some, are remind, some miracles are reminders and others are prophecies. God creates the vine and teaches it to draw up water by its roots, and with the aid of the sun, turns that water into a juice which ferments and takes on certain qualities. Thus, every year from Noah's time until ours, God turns water into wine. That is what men fail to see. Right? So, there was a time at Cana in Galilee when Jesus encounters jugs of water, and he turns that water into wine. And he does what he actually claims about himself. He says, the son does not do anything except what the father has revealed to him. And so when he encounters water, he's like, oh, my father's been turning water into wine from the creation of the world. I'll just do it real, real fast 
on a smaller scale. Are you tracking with me? So the miracles are not the miracles are not some far off like unbelievable thing. They actually fit squarely into nature. And really what we see is the sovereign of nature controlling what he has already created. And if he is the sovereign of nature, this is exactly what we would expect him to do. Lastly, a lack of measurable evidence, right? The only thing I would have to say to this, because some people are like, well, okay, all right, let's say miracles do exist. Show them to me, you know? And it's like, dude, do you understand what the nature of a miracle is? Like, the nature of a miracle is it doesn't happen very often, right? And it's, and it's, a, it's a suspension of, of what we consider um, the laws of nature, which really what I'm saying is, is it, it, in some sense, it is a suspension of the laws of nature, but I would even say, I mean, we were, um, uh, I was just a few hours ago sitting with my father-in-law, um, asking him about his surgery that he's having on his back tomorrow, and he's like, oh yeah, I've, uh, he's got a herniated disc. So he's like, yeah, they're going to make a little incision, they're going to go in there, they're going to remove the damaged part, and then they're going to um, seal it up, and then I've got to be still for like a couple of months. Why? Because the body is doing what? It's healing itself. It literally is like regenerating another one. Like, that's crazy, (laughs) right? This is also why when you go to a dead person and cut the dead person, the dead person does not regenerate himself. But if you go to a live person and you cut the person and sew him back up, he will regenerate himself, right? I mean, how many of y'all are in the medical field? Um, A handful of you? Like, it should blow our minds every day that, when you cut yourself and put some, you know, hydroperoxide and neosporin in a Band-Aid, that a couple days later, it's gone. What is that? You know what I'm saying? And what I'm saying is there is something in a live person that's not in a dead person. And there's some, if you call it a, you can call it whatever you want, call it the, the uh, biology, call it the laws of nature, call it a life force. That's really kind of what it is, right? But there is something inside of us that regenerates our, broken, our brokenness, um, and that, that sustaining power inside of us is what some may call the healer that is within, right? We interact with a, I mean, I know this is some like maybe new age terminology or whatever, but we interact with a life force every day that sustains us, that keeps our heart beating. It's, it is the force be. Um, uh, and I don't care what kind of uh, doctor comes along and he can measure it and call it whatever he wants and he can stimulate it and take it down or whatever, but, but he, the doctor himself is not that life force. Um, he can cut and sew and treat and all this stuff, but he can't heal. Only that is the thing that can heal us. And so before we um, to cavalierly come to the Gospels and say, I don't know about this. You just need to understand that in your practical everyday life, you are encountering this type of reality on a daily basis. You just don't realize it. Are you tracking with me? Okay. Um, So when it comes to lack of measurable evidence, I'm like, all right, well, what do you want to see? (laughs) You know, I mean, step back and look at the universe. Um, Okay, so before we move on, any questions so far? I know that was 20, that was 20 minutes of um, maybe some things that you maybe haven't thought through um, real critically before. Maybe you have. If you have, great. I love it. But any questions? Anything that's like, eh, I don't know about that. Um, 
Do not be afraid. Yep, hang on. Hang on. I'm sorry. I'm, we're recording this, so people get to hear your voice. We all pass this down to her, please. Thank you. I'm just, I'm just curious. Um, you said life force, and it made me think of Star Wars. It made me what? Think of Star Wars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, compare, compare the life force you're talking about with, with God. I mean, where do they, are they the same or? Um, well, um, at, at the end of this talk, the answer is going to be yes, um, but I'm not quite there yet. Oh, um, sorry. But <laughs> typically when I talk to uh, skeptics, and I know probably the vast majority of you in here are not skeptics, um, so it's a... Uh, a little bit more of a safe place, but I try to, I try to allow the argument to build up to itself, um, so we don't skip steps. Um, this is why Lewis. Have y'all read *Mere Christianity* before? Um, this is why Lewis starts with um, God as um, a uh, uh, basically that moral standard that he, and that's why he became a Christian because he was like, I had, um, I had this idea of right and wrong inside of me, and yet as an atheist, I had nothing to measure that by. And so um, if somebody came up and stole my wallet and shot me in the face, I had no grounds to be upset or to cry justice for that because I, I, I could not appeal to something outside of my own reality. My reality was just, it just is. And, and that's why I think, you know, for, for, a, um, for an honest atheist, for an honest uh, agnostic, I mean, less agnostic because agnostics are normally they're, they're, agnostics are just the chicken atheists, right? They just, um, they're the ones that are like, well, I don't know, you know, I'm going to punt, you know. Um, I mean, they're first and ten, they're first and ten at the one yard line and they're punting, you know. It's like, come on, you know, you're close. <laughs> but um, you can tell I'm getting excited about football season. Um, but, but, uh, but the atheist worldview, uh, the, the logical conclusion of it is nihilism. Um, and nihilism is you can't know anything. There's there's no meaning. Um, meaning is only what we assign to it. And so you get guys like Hemingway and and Nietzsche and some of these guys who are are I mean frankly are what we would expect them to be severely depressed. And Hemingway even goes as far um, as to uh, put a shotgun in his mouth, right? Um, and so um, it just uh, the the naturalistic worldview um, uh, it just doesn't work. Um, it's never worked, and, and really, I think what you what you'll find as you as you study it is you you see guys who are and, and gals who are coming to the table with um, with a lot of issues um, that shape their worldview, um, and they're doing the the best the very best they can to to uh, create a worldview in uh, in which they can be their own god, and when you're your own god. You turn into a demon and kill yourself. That's what happens. Um, whether you like it or not, that's what happens. Um, or, I mean, to be fair, um, what happens is you, you create your own reality in which you're your own God, and then the things that you do are simply attempts to anesthetize the pain of your empty life. So you busy yourself, or you find your value in things, or you, and then ultimately they disappoint and they upset, and you know, um, it's just not a functional um, reality. It, it, well, I, in my opinion, I don't think it represents reality. So it's a pseudo 
reality. And I think that that, I, I think that um, if we start with, well, hey, let's just pay attention to that. Like, why did that body just heal itself? Um, why, why do we exist? Um, why, why, do, why do when seeds fall out of other plants and they put themselves in the ground and they grow back up, why do we get more bread out of bread? Why do fish, why does the, you know, swarming ocean reproduce itself? And why, when Jesus shows up on the face of the planet, does he take bread and make more bread? And fish and make more fish? And encounter dead bodies? And transfer that life force back into that person's dead body? Um, I think these are questions that we need to ask ourselves. Who, which ultimately, I'm way, way ahead of myself, but I'll get to the end right now. Who is this man? Right? I think that that is, you know, that, that is the question. Um, who is this man? So that's a little bit of a random conglomeration of an answer for your question, but I could have just said yes, <laughs> and that would have sufficed. But they're good things to think about. Anybody else before we move on? Can you pass the, I'm sorry, can you pass the mic? Down? I, I'm sorry, I forgot your name. I, you told me last week, Kristen. One of the things I think is really interesting about naturalists and scientists is like they'll say that you can't measure these things, but 100 years ago we couldn't measure half the stuff we measure now. Yep. So who's to say that in another 100,000, however many years, we might be able to actually measure spiritual things? Yep. Um, so that's yep. Good. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, a, that's an interesting comment. Um, there's another uh, question that, uh, typically, a lot of people have, and that is, we typically in the naturalistic worldview, naturalism will will naturally, pardon the pun, um, uh, pit the scientific method against the immaterial spiritual reality. So it's kind of like, um, I don't believe in, I don't have faith. I believe in what science, right? You hear this on a consistent basis, and I, again, I think that. Um, uh, it for, in my opinion anyway, for a thinking, rational person, um, y- you have to acknowledge the limitations of science um, and, and the limitations of, of the, the immaterial as well. I mean, uh, it's not like um, I can fully com- comprehend God, right? Um, although, we'll talk more about that. But, but I think when it comes to science, um, science can only measure what is, so, um, for instance, you put uh, 50 cents into a drawer and come back the next day um, and you test this hundreds of times, right? Um, and you come back the next day, how much money would be in the drawer? 50 cents, right? Um, provided what? Okay, you don't add or take away or, or somebody comes and takes your 50 cents, right? <laughs> um, but but that's, that's a good illustration of what science can and cannot do. It can count the quarters that are in the drawer every time. It cannot control whether somebody comes and takes a quarter out or not. Does that make sense? So science is only, only the capacity to measure what is. And frankly, um, I mean, it, to, to pay attention to patterns to, and, and then to make judgment calls based on those patterns to say, hey, in this instance, we should do this because nature has shown that these things work themselves out in this way. But when something comes along that breaks from that pattern, right, 
then science can't explain why that happened or um, exactly even what happened. It's just now starting to measure it on a different strand. And so um, I, I think just being able to, or, or at least having the humility to acknowledge that there are things out there that science cannot measure, can't understand. Um, and I think that's exactly what the miracle of the incarnation is, is that um, we have this drawer that has 50 cents in it, and um, all of a sudden now, um, you know, uh, we, we come back and now there's a dollar in there, right? And we're like, what happened? <laughs> um, well, somebody tampered with the drawer, right? And, and that's the whole point, is that in, in this system of natural law, um, we see someone who interrupts, who, who, who uh, tampers with the, the natural laws and does so in such a way that um, we should pay attention to um, because of the way that he's doing what he's doing. Um, so, yeah, just an acknowledgement that science can only take us so far. It's interesting. I was listening to a debate the other day. Um, God, what's the guy's name? Lawrence Krauss. Anybody heard of this guy? He's a physicist. Um, he was debating a Christian apologist. And uh, it was really interesting. Krauss was, was actually saying the exact same th- thing I'm saying. He's like, we, we only can go so far with science, but there's so much more out there. And, and, and his, his deal was, well, what should we do? And Krauss literally, Krauss goes, we need to ask the universe. Right? And, and I was like, I mean, in a weird way, like, I kind of agree with you. Um, if you're talking about, we need to ask the power that drives the universe. I would just call that power that drives the universe God. Um, and so, um, I mean, even, even atheistic um, physicists are acknowledging that there is so much more and that there are laws that drive these things. And even, it's just a weird thing. I mean, he even personalized it. He was talking about the universe as if it was a person. Right, um, it, was, it was fascinating. Anyway, any more questions before we move on? Okay. Well, turn in your Bibles to uh, Mark chapter two. We're going to be in Mark pretty much the whole time. And I, I just want to cover. I want to cover five of Jesus's works tonight. Well, really, six, but the sixth is a bonus. How about that? <laughs> talking about it like it's a bonus. You can go read the Gospels and get a bunch of bonus. Read them for yourselves. Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. We talked about this last week, so I won't camp out a, a, a real long time here, but I'm just going to read it, and then we'll, I'll make some points we'll move on. Um, a few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. So many gathered, um, so many gathered that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four, uh, four of them. Since they could not get um, him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above, and, and after digging through it, lowered the mat um, the paralyzed man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, it really interesting, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit 
um, that this is what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? What, what's easier for, uh, for, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. So again, I painted this picture last week, but um, again, we're, let's try to enter into these stories. Like we're in this compound that Jesus is teaching in. These, these men are trying to get their friend to Jesus. They open, um, the, open up the thatched roof. They lower this man down. They bring the paralyzed man to, uh, pushing through the crowd to get to him. And, and the scribes and the Pharisees are there listening to Jesus teach Torah, um, teach the law, um, teach the scriptures, the scriptures that testify about himself, if you remember that claim that he made um, from last week. And, and you, you bring this man, and, and Jesus has this interesting uh, dialogue with um, the Pharisees who are thinking in their hearts, who's this guy think he is? Nobody can forgive sins, but who? But God alone. And, and Jesus is claiming that he is the authority to forgive sins. Now, when you come to, like, let's take for instance, um, if I come in and I'm talking about, if I go onto a basketball court, and if you know me, um, then, you know, I, I'm not very good at basketball, right? Um, literally, my junior high basketball coach was like, Nathan, go play football, right? And so I was like, okay, I'll go play football. And I was good at football, so I'm glad he did. But, um, but it, it would be like me going into the practice facility for the Dallas Mavericks or um, uh, uh, the Cleveland, who are the Cleveland? Cavaliers, right? Um, for the Cleveland Cavaliers, and, and walking up to LeBron James and be like, what's up, dude? One-on-one, let's go right now. I'm going to smoke you, right? Pretty much everybody would do what? Yeah, yeah, you would laugh at me, kind of like you are right now. Like, uh, I kind of want to laugh at you, but it's a little uncomfortable. Um, but, it's, but, I mean, you would laugh at me. Why? Why would you laugh at me? Come on, you're not going to hurt my feelings, I promise. Yeah, because because I'm I have I have no capacity to fulfill my claim that I'm going to smoke LeBron James, right? However, let's let's reverse it. Um, LeBron comes in to let's say a high school practice facility, and a high school team is practicing, and he picks a mediocre player and is like, "Hey, one on one, I'm going to smoke you." Nobody's laughing, right? Why? Yeah, because he can back it up. Right? He's not just saying something. He has the capacity, and even would, play basketball against this kid in such a way that it would embarrass the kid for the rest of his life and probably scar him. Right? And so we, um, we, we recognize that when people make claims that are outstanding, they had better do outstanding things to back up their claims. Otherwise, we dismiss them. Right? I mean, um, if I was to say basketball, and then you saw me play basketball and be like, Ugh, you know, literally, I, my wife laughs at me sometimes. We were uh, out with her, uh, uh, your cousins or your nephews. We were out with the family at one point. We we're kicking a soccer ball around, and here I am kicking a soccer ball around. I'm like, boom, like roll my ankle and fall over, and my ankle swells up, you know, the size of a watermelon. It's like, dude, I can't even dribble a soccer ball around, you know, um, and so. Uh, there, there's something laughable about someone who doesn't have the capacity to back up that claim 
um, that, that causes people to dismiss them. And so this is a similar experience for the, Pharise- for the scribes and Pharisees. Um, they're thinking, hey, you're just a rabbi. You're just a teacher. Um, and you're claiming that you have the authority to forgive sins. Nobody can forgive sins but God alone. And, and then what's crazy is um, this rabbi, Yeshua, looks back at them and says, look, guys, what's easier for you? Is it easier for me to say that I have the authority to forgive his sins and that I actually forgive his sin? Or is it easier for me to say, get up, take up your mat, and, and go home? You call it, whatever. But so that you know that I have the capacity to back up my claim, I tell you, pick up your mat and walk home. And I could just imagine, like, I, we talked about this last week a little bit, but I could just imagine the kind of, like, hush that came over everybody there to, like, look at this dude, and this dude's kind of like, you know, I've been paralyzed. I don't know, the text doesn't say how long he's been paralyzed, but, um, but he's, been, he's probably been paralyzed for long enough to get used to it. So he's like, I haven't moved in a while, and I'm not sure that I can, but it's, you know, I can almost see Jesus coming like, come on, man, seriously, get up. I'm not joking with you. And... And, and uh, there's something uh, uh, transformative that happens with someone when, when Jesus says, I have the authority to forgive your sins, and I do forgive your sins, and as a proof that I forgive your sins, uh, get up, take up your mat, and go home, and the guy actually gets up. Right? He actually begins to move his legs and is like, you know, probably some, <laughs> maybe a little bit of rustiness in there, right? But... But he literally gets up and he's like, I can move. I'll, okay, dude, you told me to roll up my mat. I'll roll up my mat. Like, um, it, it, this, is a, um, this is a fascinating um, story. Not just because of the outstanding claim that Jesus made, but because he's actually backing it up. Um, verse 12, the man got up and he took his mat and walked out in full view of everyone. And everybody was amazed, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. Right? So you don't just have, as, as a disciple of Jesus, as you're looking at him and you're going, hey, dude, you probably shouldn't forgive that guy's sins, right? This is why we pray to God, and, and we pray um, through Torah, and we ask God to, to forgive us, and this is why we celebrate the Day of Atonement, right? Yom Kippur. This is why we have our festivals and feasts. This is why we sacrifice lambs on the altar for the forgiveness of sins. And now you come along as, as someone who's claiming to be the embodiment of all of that stuff and say, oh, I can forgive your sins. So you probably shouldn't say that. And then Jesus ignores you, right? And he says, dude, get up your mat, take up your mat and, and walk home. And the guy actually gets up. I mean, you're like, you're like, oh, I don't know what to say to that, other than to be amazed. Um, so what we see, I mean, and we, don't, we see it elsewhere, but this is just one story that I think uh, clearly illustrates it. But we see that Jesus has the authority over sin. In some, in some sense, there was a man who was born um, to a woman in Palestine in the first century, and he grew up, and, and, and then he began to exhibit the ability to forgive people's sin. As if he was the chief one offended in everybody's sin. And he's not just saying this, he's doing things that are backing up his claim. Mark chapter 4, 
verses 35 to 41. This is one of my favorite um, passages in the whole Bible. It's also, um, anybody have small children in here? Anybody? All right, you do? Yeah, a couple of us. So, anybody got the Jesus Storybook Bible? Um, if you don't have the Jesus Storybook Bible, I encourage you to get it. Dude, seriously. Like, even if you don't have kids, go buy the Jesus Storybook Bible. <laughs> um, it's just a really well, it's really well done. It's really well written. Um, uh, uh, and uh, my, my son, who's uh, turned two in April, his favorite story is, is called The Captain of the Storm, right? And it's Jesus um, calming the storm. And I, I think it's his favorite. Well, I know it's his favorite. Because as I read the story, we're acting out, you know, the deal. And so there's big waves, and I'll toss him, and, you know, lightning, and I'll tickle him, you know. And he's like, ah, you know. Um, and it's funny because I've read it to him so many times, I could probably recite it to you right now, the whole story. And also, as I'm reading it, we'll get to parts where I'll just stop and Nate, my son, will finish the sentence, right? <laughs> so uh, it's funny. It's like um, Jesus was tired because he'd been helping people. So as soon as his head hit the pillow, he fell, and then Nate goes, fast asleep, you know, because that's what it says. Um, but, yeah, go ahead. Does it have to do with the Jesus Storybook Bible? Okay, well, whatever. <laughs> yeah. Let's, uh, no, it's fine. Where's the, where's the mic? Yeah. Sorry if this is really clear to everybody else. Um, I guess my question is, um, had there been no suspicion from the Pharisees, would Jesus have healed the paralyzed man and, have, and had him get up and walk? Yeah, so, uh, I was, mean, I think that... Um, does that make sense what I'm asking? Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. So... Um, you have to understand contextually um, what's happening. The, the, fact that, um, the fact that Jesus um, says that your sins are forgiven, this is a very, I, I believe it's a very intentional claim that Jesus is making. Um, now, obviously, as soon as you say something like um, your sins are forgiven, um, it, it would be like, um, you know, it, it would be like you clobbering him over the head with the microphone and me telling you, oh, I forgive you right? Like, everybody in here would be like, what the heck are you talking about? Like, you're not offended in that. Like, he needs to forgive you, right? So, when, when Jesus says that, um, in that context, with, among very religious people whose identity is centered in the fact that God is with them, right, um, in, in Torah, in the Tanakh, in the whole Hebrew Old Testament, then um, when, when a man says, I forgive your sins to a paralytic, then um, it, it's not a far-fetched assumption that the person who's making this claim would think, these people are going to think that I'm crazy, right? So I think Jesus is intentionally doing this. One, because I think he's showing us that he actually does have the authority to forgive sins. Um, but we should not be surprised by the fact that people are responding to him by saying, hey, that, that claim is out of bounds because clearly you're a man and not God. Would it have been considered in the time, and again, I'm sorry, everybody else knows this. Um, would it have been considered in the time that the guy's sins had caused him to be paralyzed, and therefore yep. there was a... Yep. Okay. That was a strong assumption in the first century. Okay. We see the same thing in John 9, when Jesus heals the blind man. You remember this story? Mm -hmm. So um, Jesus heals a blind man, then the blind man comes, and, and the Pharisees are like, whoa, how can you see? Right? Because this is the one miracle um, it, that... Uh, uh, People being healed of blindness is, never occurs in the Old Testament. Did you all know that? Right? So when Jesus heals someone of their blindness, people are like, we ain't seen this before. Right? And so 
Um, when Jesus heals a blind man, the Pharisees are obviously interested in that. Like, who healed you? You know? And, and, uh, and so they go on, da, 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 da. And then people ask Jesus later on as he's in, in, interacting with them. They said, who sinned this man or his parents so that he was born blind? Right? So there was a pretty strong um, assumption that um, whatever physical maladies or, or um, you know, just uh, in, in, you know, in, impaired, what am I trying to say, physical problems um, were, were the result of sin. Um, whether this man sinned or not um, to actually cause his, paraly- uh, you know, for him to be paralyzed, we don't know. I think Jesus um, still is forgiving his sins um, because um, all deformities, all all um, natural outworkings of sin and dysfunction are a result of sin. And so whether he's, whether he's forgiving this man specifically for a certain sin or just generally for all of his sins, we don't know. But in, at any rate, Jesus is uh, well within his right to, for, to extend forgiveness to this man. Um, and people are also ex- expecting, um, as we would expect them to, are also shocked by this claim because of that. So because it was considered you've sinned, that's why you're paralyzed, by healing him of that, it, it was an outward representation of the forgiveness of sin. That's right. Okay. Yep. So Mark chapter 4, starting verse 35. Um, that day when, when evening came, he said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side of the lake. Um, Actually, lake's not in there. That's in the Jesus Storybook Bible. <laughs> That's awesome. <clears throat> Leaving the crowd behind, they, they took him along um, just as he was in the boat. There were, there were also other boats with him. And a furious squall came up. Squall, what the heck is a squall? A furious storm came up, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? Now, you're going to realize the storm is, is quick and it's also severe. These guys are professional fishermen, like it's their job to be on the lake. So the fact that they're, they can't handle it is significant. Um, Jesus got up and he rebuked the wind and said to the waves, quiet, or, or the, the Greek word actually um, is peace, or even stronger than that. Um, I think quiet is, is maybe a little bit um, uh, too tame. He's saying, shut up, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. <laughs> and then, G- so again, you're in the boat with Jesus, right? You're 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 rowing out into the middle of the lake. Have you guys ever seen Lake Kinneret, the Sea of Galilee? Um, it's it's uh, 11 miles wide and 13 miles long. If you're standing on the east side, you can clearly, no problem at all, see the west side, right? If you're on the north side, you can clearly. Well, on a hazy day, it's tough to see the south side, but. But, um, but if you're on the south side, you surely can see the north side because that's, that's hilly up there. The south side is a river basin. It's where the Jordan River goes. But on the west side are mountains. So especially if you're standing on the, I'm sorry, on the east side are mountains. So if you're standing on the west side where Tiber- Tiberius is and you're looking to the west side, I'm sorry, other way around. You're on the west side looking at the east side, then, I mean, there's mountains. So um, you can clearly see the other side. So they're thinking, hey, let's go over to this place. Um, and, and, and I think Jesus is intentionally going to the other place, as, as we see um, in, at the beginning of chapter 5, which we'll cover in a minute. 
but um, the disciples row out into the middle of the lake, and then they're in the middle of the lake, and what happens is, is, is on the east side of the lake are these mountains called the Golan Heights. And the wind would come off the Golan Heights and sweep down into this valley that the Sea of Galilee sits in, or, or Lake Kinneret, and it would stir up the water because the wind, once, once it came down off the mountains, it's not like it went somewhere else. It just got caught in that deal, and it literally acted as like a funnel, right? So these quick storms would, would kick up and be sometimes fairly severe. Um, it's still that way today. Um, but they, they row out, and they get to the point where they're like, hey, we're starting to take on water, and we can't, I mean, it, you guys seen first century fishing boat? This is not like the Titanic, right? It looks more like a canoe. <laughs> I mean, it's a bigger canoe, but it's, it's, uh, I mean, it's, it's not that super wide. I mean, maybe a little bit wider than this table, right? Um, kind of out here, um, uh, enough for a handful of guys to work the boat and pull some fish in. Um, maybe no longer than from me to, um, uh, to the, where the barrier is by the staircase. So about that long and, and, you know, maybe a table and a half wide. So small fishing boat. And these guys are, are out there trying to um, handle this thing. And Jesus is asleep, right? <laughs> it's like, that go, man. Um, what, sometimes we have uh, sleep that's not very peaceful. I think Jesus slept with peace, right? Um, I just, I don't know, I think that about him. Um, so as this is happening, um, Jesus is asleep, and, and they wake him up, and they're like, hey, you're going to let us drown. So it's, at, at some point they know that, this, that, that, their, uh, that their master has some kind of capacity to help them in this issue. They don't know exactly what he's going to do. I don't think any of them saw that what was coming would actually happen. So they wake him up, and Jesus wakes up, and, and literally, I mean, you know, it's almost like, hey, we know, you're, we know you can do some cool stuff, so help us shovel the water out of here, you know? Help us row really fast, and we'll kind of become a motorboat and get to the other side. I don't think anybody saw him standing up and being like, hey, peace, shut up, be still. And I don't think anybody saw the fact that when Jesus spoke to the storm, right, spoke to the storm um, that what would follow was a deep stillness, like immediately. Um, And so very naturally, I mean, you're sitting there struggling with the sails or you're probably trying to take them down so the wind doesn't topple you over. You're, You're probably trying to bail water out. You're rowing against the waves and, and you're trying with all your might to do this. And, and this guy stands up, this dude that has claimed to forgive sins and turns water into wine and other crazy things, um, now is showing that he has authority over nature itself. That there's a storm and then Jesus says, go away, and then there's not a storm. Um, and very naturally, I think the disciples' reaction is what? I mean, what do they say? Um, they were terrified, and they asked each other what? Yeah. Who is this? Who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? The Jesus story of the Bible is a great line um, in there. It, uh, Jesus, uh, this is another one where in the Jesus story of the Bible, uh, Jesus tells the storm, hush. Right, and so uh, as I'm tossing Nate around and we're wrestling, and the lightning, you know, and he's like, ah, <clears throat> um, and I'm throwing him across the bed. <laughs> um, uh, the other night he slammed his head against the wall. Um, but 
but I mean, you know, whatever. He's, he's going to play football, so um, got to get got to get him used to it. Um, but no, I mean, we're we're kind of roughhousing, and, and he loves it. He's laughing, right? And I'll say, I'll say, and then Jesus stood up and he said to the waves and the wind, "What did he say, Nate?" And Nate'll go, "Hush." And then the next line um, in the Jesus story Bible was really cool. Um, uh, it, it it just says, and 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 the wind and the waves um, recognized Jesus's voice. That's a cool line um, because it was the same voice that made them in the beginning, and they did what Jesus said. Right. Um, and, and I think um, as we think about this story, we're, we're, we're connecting the dots between that power that we were talking about in the beginning, this life force, this, this, this power behind creation that is driving it, sustaining it, that's creating Lucy in the womb, right, um, is now speaking to a storm that he made and is sovereignly controlling the elements. And the elements respond to him because he is their maker. Again, Jesus is not interacting with them in some kind of seancic um, uh, incantation or magic trick. He is merely speaking and commanding the storm. And naturally, the disciples are saying, who is this? And not only who is this, but even before it says uh, they were terrified. Who is this man? Jesus has authority over spirits. Look at the next passage in Mark, right? So they went across the lake, um, and they're probably still going, what just happened? <laughs> right? But they went across um, to the region of, of uh, Gerasa, or the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an evil spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore, his, he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. Um, he is insane. Um, he is possessed. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Swear to God that you won't torture me. So again, you've, already, you've just seen Jesus. You, know, you, saw the, you saw Jesus heal this guy uh, and forgive his sins. That was kind of crazy. And then you're crossing the lake, and there's this massive storm, and Jesus is just like, hey, shut up. And the storm stops. So you're like, what in the world is going on? And then you get across to the other side, and when Jesus steps out of this boat, this dude that you've probably heard about before because he's crazy and lives among the tombs is sprinting at you, and you're like, dude, I'm staying in the boat, <laughs> right? And yet Jesus is, uh, moves up to approach this man, and instead of the man having a, a sharp rock or a rock that he throws at Jesus or tries to assault Jesus, he does what instead? He falls at his feet and says, what do, you, what do you want with me? Who? Son of the Most High God. All right, now, look, I'm, I'm just telling you, as, as a disciple of Jesus who's in the boat, and that dude's over there, and you're thinking he might assault Jesus, but instead he falls at his feet and worships him, 
and ascribes to him the honor and glory that's due to him, I mean, you're literally scratching your head. Like, and you're freaked out. Like, what is going on? And yet, here he is. And Jesus, again, this steady calm, this, this security in who he knows that he is. Um, and Jesus said to him, come out of this man, evil spirit. And, and Jesus asked him, what's your name? So now, so now it's, and Jesus is talking to this man, but you get the sense that Jesus is not really talking to the man. He's talking to someone else. And he says, what's your name? And, and this someone else responds and says, my name is Legion, he replied. Um, a legion is typically um, 2,000 Roman soldiers. So lots of dudes. Um, I'm Legion for we are many. And he begged, he, he's begging Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. Verse 11, a large herd of pigs was feeding on a nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. And, and, and then what in verse 13? He did what? He gave them permission. <laughs> right? He's like, okay. Um, I mean, you see this guy groveling at Jesus' feet, begging him. And, and Jesus gives them permission. And the evil spirits came out and went into the pigs. And the herd, about 2,000, again, there you go, um, for legion. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank. Again, they're on the Golan Heights in the, uh, the region of Garasa on the, on the east side of the lake. So there's steep hills. It's the same steep hill that the wind came down to churn up the lake to cause the storm, which, well, I'll make a point about that in a second. But now these pigs are on their way down um, into the water, the herd about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake, and they were drowned. So Jesus intentionally gets into the boat with his disciples to cross over to the other side. Um, I think what Mark is saying, is trying to tell us here, just from the narrative, is he's going to meet the demoniac. He's going to meet the man in the region of the Gerasenes. And on his way... He just happens to run into a crazy storm, right? And suppresses that storm, almost as, as if the storm is trying to stop him from making it to the other side to encounter a man that is possessed by 2,000 demons, right? So you have this crazy storm that tries to stop Jesus Jesus suppresses that storm by the word of his mouth, and then when he encounters the demons on the other side of the lake, they beg him to not cast them out of the area, and Jesus allows them to go into the pigs, and then the pigs, now possessed by demons, rush down where? Into the lake and are drowned. So the water tries to stop Jesus. Jesus is like, you can't stop me. Then the demons try to not get him to cast him out of the area, and he says, go into the pigs. And then, ironically, the pigs go where? Into the water. The same water that just tried to stop Jesus from crossing the lake. And then if you go to chapter 6 of Mark, what does Jesus do into the water? He's walking on it. You can't stop me from crossing the lake. 
I have authority over the demonic spiritual power that is at work in this man. Just for the fun of it, I'm going to put you into an unclean animal and cast you back into the element that you used to try to stop me. And then a couple of chapters later, I'm going to walk on you. Just for the heck of it. Right? Try to stop me, is what he's saying. I am the sovereign of everything. And he's not just saying it, which we covered last week. He is showing us these things. He's sovereign over sin. He's sovereign over the spirits. He's sovereign over nature. He's sovereign. He's, he's sovereign. He has authority over disease. All right, let's keep going. Um, uh, we'll, we'll skip the rest of that uh, section and, and go to verse 21. When, when Jesus again had crossed over uh, the, the boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was uh, by the lake. There, one of the synagogue rulers named Jairus came there. Seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come over and uh, please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman um, was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. Right? She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned out around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? His disciples answered, you see the people crowding against you, and yet you ask, who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth, and he said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. So now, this woman who's been, who has suffered for, um, how many years did it say? Twelve years um, of, of this disease. And how many years did it say Jairus' daughter is? Twelve years old. Jairus' daughter, uh, the, the daughter of, of a prominent man, and then a woman who, who's 12 years old and dead, and a, and, a, and a hemorrhaging woman who had been suffering for 12 years who we do not know her name, right? And Jesus is interacting with, with uh, the crowd and, and literally, I mean, going back to your question, like, what, who is this life force? I mean, you see a woman who'd, been, who'd suffered a lot at doctor's hands for 12 years, and she, she literally believes, if I just touch his clothes, I'll be healed, right? It's that kind of faith that she's exercising so that when she encounters Jesus, um, the, uh, it's, it's not as if the disease passes to Jesus. There is some sort of life force that exists within this man that when this woman just touches the tassel of his robe, that life force transfer, transfers from him to her. It's clear that this happens because Jesus says what? I felt something go out of me. What in the world? Right? And this woman immediately knows that she's healed. I mean, I don't, we don't know what her infirm, infirmity was, but, but whatever it was, she knows that she's whole again because she encountered Jesus. And, and she prostrates herself 
in front of him. Jesus, I mean, this is what's crazy, is that Jesus is, is so full of life that he's not even intentionally healing her. She's just exercising faith to reach out to him, and life is transferred to her. That's crazy, right? Um, he is authority, he has authority over disease, and then to follow that, he has authority over death. Let's keep reading the passage. Verse 35, while Jesus was still speaking, some men came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter's dead. They said, why bother the teacher anymore? And Jesus ignored what they said. And he told Jairus, do not be afraid. Just believe. Right? He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue ruler, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, Wow, why the commotion and the wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. And they laughed at him. Because what did they know? The kid's dead. What's, I, I do find it interesting, though, that Jesus says that, that, the, that, that the, the little girl is sleeping. Um, because I do think that he has enough self-awareness about who he is and what he's about to do that in his mind she is just asleep, right? What is death but a barrier for me to cross over and wake her up? We'll get into that a lot more when we cover the resurrection, right? Um, but Jesus said in John 11, and we'll talk about this in a minute, Jesus said, what? I am the resurrection and the life. So it's not as if Jesus is subject to this life force or the capacity to resurrect people. He is that life force. He is the resurrection. Um, it, it's something that is... Uh, that he defines, not the other way around. He put him out. He said, get out. He took the child's father and the mother and, the, and those three disciples, and he went into where the child was, and he took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means in Aramaic, it's an Aramaic phrase, which, says, which just says, daughter, little girl, I'm tell, I tell you, get up. Wake up. And you got to realize, if you're Peter, James, and John, right, um, the brother of James, then you're following him to the end of this, and you've already seen enough crazy stuff. I mean, uh, he's forgiving people's sins, he's calming the storm, he's casting out demons, and demons are calling him son of the most high, and they're actually doing what he says. Um, this, and as if that's not crazy enough, the storm is doing what he says, and the paralyzed guy is doing what he says. Everybody's doing what Jesus says. And then now this dead girl who's 12 years old you've just seen this hemorrhaging woman be healed of a hemor of a of a bleed that lasted for 12 years and now this 12 year old girl is dead and and he takes her by the hand um, i think you know this is a uh, i don't know who painted this but i think this is a, a cool painting i mean he's he's reaching down um he's not just reaching down to touch the girl he's reaching down in into death itself and and is um bringing life, because I am the way and the truth and the life. I am life itself. Um, immediately, the girl stood up and walked around. 
she was 12 years old. I don't think it's ironic that, that the author is telling us twice that the girl is 12 years old, right? Um, um, he's, he's healing a woman of a hemorrhage that lasted 12 years, and she's anonymous. And he's healing a synagogue ruler's daughter, a prominent girl who is 12 years old. Um, I think the message that Mark is communicating is, look, it did not matter who you are, how old you were, or how long you've suffered what you've suffered. When Christ touches you, you are alive. Because he himself is life. He has already claimed it. He's doing it. He's validating his claim. And what? They were completely astonished. <laughs> I mean, um, his claims were outstanding and people tried to kill him. And yet he's doing things that when he does them, people are completely astonished. They're amazed. They're terrified. They're asking questions like, who is this man? Um, and, and, he, uh, and then he does something that he does a couple of times where he just says, hey, don't, don't, um, don't tell anybody about this. How are you not gonna? How are you gonna not tell someone about this, right? Um, especially, I think Peter, who uh, most theologians believe is the source behind Mark, I think Peter's remembering this because he's there. He saw it, and he's like, "Hey, I know Jesus told me not to tell anybody about this, but now Jesus is alive from the dead, and I think it's fair game, right?" <laughs> um, so um, they gave her something to eat. There's another story um, that in in John uh, chapter 11 that I think is really interesting, and it's the story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. Um, and, and, you know, Jesus claims to be the resurrection and the life, and then um, he tells Martha this. Martha goes and gets her sister Mary. Mary comes back, and when she sees Jesus, Jesus um, sees her, and, and the, the text says that, that he was deeply moved in his spirit. Lazarus was his friend, right? Um, Death is not something that's this arbitrary thing that, that is um, victimless, that is um, something we should just laugh at. Death is horrific. Death is what happens as a result of sin. Death is what happens because we have separated ourselves from this life source. Um, if, if, you're not, if you're not united to the life source, you cannot do anything but wither and die. Um, and and the, the, the reverse is true. If you're connected to this life source, you cannot die at all. And this is why Jesus says in, um, in uh, uh, John chapter 11, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. Right? Um, the one who lives because of me will never die. Do you believe this? And, and Martha responds really beautifully and just says, I believe. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God. And, and Mary, you know, comes and, and Jesus is deeply moved. He's grieving because of death. Whenever anybody asks about the problem of, of suffering or the problem of evil, which is a very difficult issue, no doubt about it. But I always tell them, you have whatever answer you answer, if it's going to be biblical um, when, when you're answering the question of the problem of evil, it has to start with Jesus. What is Jesus doing? 
How is Jesus interacting with, with suffering, with pain, with death? Right? And what we see Jesus doing is claiming that he is the resurrection and the life. He's grieving over the fact that death exists, that suffering exists. John eleven thirty five. 35, Jesus encounters the tomb of Lazarus, and what does he do? He weeps. He's weeping over this. He's weeping over our fallen condition. But he's not just weeping. What does he do? Um, this man who had been dead for probably four days, which was not, in, in the Jewish culture, was, was not just dead. This man is dead, 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 right? Um, he's not coming back from the grave. In fact, on the third day when they buried people, part of the ritual was they would leave the stone rolled away from the tomb. And that on the third day, um, a close family member or a rabbi or someone like that um, would call out, um, Lazarus, come out. Lazarus, come out. Lazarus, come out. They would do it three times. Because, I mean, in those days, you know, if people were in a coma or they just, well, they're not really dead, but, you know, they think they are. I mean, um, they're basically um, making sure <laughs> this guy is dead. And then they sealed the tomb, right? Um, and, and, uh, and so Lazarus is dead. He's been dead. For four days, he's dead, 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 dead. And, and Jesus weeps over this, and he tells him, he's like, hey, roll away the stone. You know? and, and they actually say, the text says, um, God, there's gonna be a, it's going to smell bad. He's been dead for four days, right? Um, and Jesus is like, roll away the stone. Um, and, and I don't think he's cavalier about it. I mean, I, 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 as I have pictured the story in my mind, I think he's, I think he's grieving over this. And he tells, he says, I'm the resurrection and the life. And then he calls out to Lazarus and says, Lazarus, come out of the tomb. Come out of death. And what happened? The man who had died came out. What? The man who was dead, 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 was no longer dead. And Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And he takes bread and breaks it. And what does he do? He feeds 5,000 men. There there are not just outstanding claims that come out of the mouth of Jesus. He is doing things that fit within the natural order that is clearly showing to us that Jesus um, is this source of life. That he is who he said he is. That he has authority over all of the things that we don't have authority over. Sin, nature, spirits, disease, death. Everything that is outside of your control, Jesus has shown through his works that he is sovereign over everything in our lives. And so the question for all of us, the question for all of us, is what Jesus asked his disciples in Caesarea Philippi when he said, what about you? Who do you say that I am? That's the question. Everybody in the history of mankind, um, well, since Jesus, (laughs) um, has had to give an answer to this question. Um, who do you say that I am? And quickly, um, probably going to be 
few minutes over, so if you've got to leave, then I, I totally understand. Um, I've got one minute, but about three minutes worth of stuff. Um, there, is a, um, there is a discipline within theology called uh, uh, apophatic and cataphatic theology. I know that's, you guys are like, what? <clears throat> what the heck? <laughs> Did he just cough? <coughs> apophatic, you know? Um, but it, basically, apophatic is negative theology. So in the Old Testament, you see, you see things like, God is not like this. God is not like this. Um, God is not like, um, it, it's, it's describing God by what he's not, right? It's, it's, it's called negative theology. That's apophatic theology. Cataphatic theology is, is, is our terminology that we use to describe what God is like. So it's, it's this metaphorical language. All language is metaphorical. But especially when it comes to God is... Um, it, uh, the Lord is my shepherd, right? Is God actually a shepherd? No, but he. But the, we're using terminology that we that we know and understand to attribute to God a characteristic that we believe that He has. God is my refuge and strength. Is God literally a refuge? No, but um, He can act as He has the same attributes of a refuge. My, God is a strong tower that I run into. Is God actually a strong tower? No. God is a rock. Well, seriously? Got the rock? Do you get what I'm saying? So apophatic theology is God is not like this. Cataphatic theology is using metaphor to describe what God is. What I'm trying to say is um, we only have the capacity to understand God in in such a way that that, um, we can place him within our limited understanding of the universe and ascribe to him things that make sense to us. So we call God a shepherd. But God's not really a shepherd. Um, he's the creator of the universe, right? Um, and, and so um, what, I, what I want you to at least entertain tonight um, is the miracle. The miracle of all miracles is that this God who is incomprehensible, who is, has eternally existed, who is, unless he reveals himself to us, is unknowable. We, we cannot comprehend him. We, we live in a finite box that, that we have to use descriptors and metaphors to even describe the reality that we exist. We're so limited. And the fact is, it's the God that made the entire universe and the parameters within which we live, reality itself, the life-sustaining force that created and sustains that that God became a man and made his dwelling among us and we saw him. I mean, if you had a pipe, put that in your pipe and smoke it. You literally could think about that for the rest of your life and not get to the end of it. The fact that the God of the universe confined himself to a man who lived in Palestine 2,000 years ago. And, and not only that, but he's showing us the promise of what is to come, that the miracle of the incarnation is the miracle by which, by which all of history turns. And, and so Jesus' works, they don't take us away from reality. It's not some arbitrary reality that exists apart from everyday life. 
from, from the concreteness of who we are, the works of Jesus recall us to reality. They recall us from our dream world of ifs and ands and, and, and the limited comprehension to the stunning actuality of everything that's real. They are the focal points at which more reality becomes visible than we ordinarily see at once. What we see in Jesus is someone who walks into our reality and says, hey, there's so much more. This world is broken. It's diminished. It's weakened by your sin. And what I'm going to do through my works is part the curtains for you so that you can glimpse into the reality that that you were always intended for and the fact that I will die, lay down my life to absorb your death so that I could take my life up again, which he claimed he could do, and then he does, through the resurrection, now we're getting a glimpse into the, to, to the way life was always supposed to be. The type of reality that we were created for. That we could truly become, through the life of Jesus, sons and daughters of God. Enter into the divine life. Experience eternal life. And so whatever we say about Jesus... We cannot say that he's unimportant or arbitrary or not relevant to today. We have to say that in this man, you see the most extraordinary claims that ever left the lips of a man. And you also see works that consistently and overwhelmingly backed up his claim. And so the question I'll leave you with tonight is, who do you say that he is? Because you have to answer that question. And remember, from last week, you can't just say that he's a moral teacher or good moral teacher. He's either God or he's crazy. But it's your choice what you do. From, from now on in this class, we are going to work under the assumption, because I believe it's a really strong assumption, that Jesus is God. And so next week, we're going to talk about, um, okay, well, as God, what does he have to say?